Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Richmond, we have a problem. Alternative title, Vacuums in Virginia, and or Caracas on the James, where racism is crashing and burning into Me Too, a culture of privilege and a full-on existential crisis for the Democratic Party. In this critical swing state, just as candidates declare for the 2020 presidential election. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, offering clients financial advice, fiduciaries for families at evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments. With more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me in studio in a downtown RVA, my guest tonight, Samantha Willis, a writer you've seen her work in Essence, Glamour, uh, the Virginia Mercury, Richmond Magazine, and her groundbreaking work on the Unmasking series, a community learning experience on race and racism. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing this evening? Thank you. Great. Uh, and Professor Judy Crenshaw, she's at VCU's Robertson School of Media and Culture. Repeat guest, thank you for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. And hopefully rolling in uh, halfway through will be Jeff Shapiro, the politics guru at the Times-Dispatch. Um, he's had his hands full and he's literally trying to break away from deadline, just steps from the Capitol as this story keeps morphing. So in the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you, everybody out there, that we are here Wednesday night recording this. By the time you hear this on the radio... Our local dog catcher might well be governor <laughs> at this point. You're looking for that the line of succession. And uh, another piece of full disclosure in a more sober sense is the accuser of our lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, who's accusing him of sexual assault, is actually a friend and acquaintance of mine uh, from college. Uh, Vanessa Tyson, I believe, were Facebook friends. I bumped into her at our 20th reunion in May. I don't really keep up with her. I just feel like I should put that out there. Um, and in the way of introduction, uh, just to timestamp this for everybody out there, and I'm sorry if this is long-winded, this is the byline from Chris Saliza on Wednesday afternoon, February 6, 2019, on CNN Politics, the complete and utter collapse of Virginia's Democratic Party. Let me read a little bit for you. In the last six days, he writes, the following things have happened. Governor Ralph Northam said he wasn't a picture in his med school yearbook of two people, one in blackface, the other in KKK robes. He then recanted and said he wasn't in that picture, but he added that he had darkened his face to look more like Michael Jackson for a dance contest in 1984. Bullet two, a woman named Vanessa Tyson accused Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax of assaulting her during the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston. Fairfax angrily denied the allegations. Then on Wednesday, Tyson released a statement in which she said in part what began as consensual kissing quickly turned into a sexual assault. Bullet three. State Attorney General Mark Herring, in a statement released Wednesday morning, acknowledged that he too had appeared in blackface at a party. In 1980, when I was a 19-year-old undergraduate in college, he wrote, some friends suggested we attend a party dressed like rappers we listened to at the time, like Curtis Blow, and perform a song. Close quote. And here's what Chris Saliza wrote. What the actual hell. And I punt that to you, Samantha Willis. I would echo those words, uh, WTH for sure. The first thing that I will say is I'm encouraged to see so many media outlets referring to these incidents for what they are. Um, wearing blackface is a racist action. That's not to say that uh, the person who's donning um, blackface is a racist, but but the mere act is a racist uh, action based on a racist uh, tradition that has a particularly long history uh, in Virginia and in Richmond uh, 
at the root of this is race uh, and racism, just like so many elements of Virginia's uh, society, so many elements um, of the, the the things that make us who we are, the, the state that we are. Um, and I, one thing that's really interesting to me concerning the blackface, and I wrote about this in 2016, um, it was the, the thick of the uh, presidential election uh, time. It was it was almost uh, right before President Donald Trump was elected uh, a president. It was a very contentious time in the in the nation and also here in the city. We had a popular music promoter, Don Blackface, at a Halloween party. Uh, and this sent shockwaves through the city for two different reasons. Uh, half of the people couldn't understand why it was a big deal. The other half of the people were uh, completely outraged. Uh, and, and one thing that I found is that people really didn't understand the history of blackface, that it dates back to a tradition of, of minstrel uh, shows that were uh, degrading, dehumanizing performances, mocking African-Americans and, and formerly enslaved people. Um, in particular here in Richmond, you know, I want people to understand as this is unfolding with Governor Northam, as this is unfolding with, uh, uh, you know, Attorney General Herring, you know, and, and related to these blackface allegations and, and situations, I, I should say, here in Richmond, we have a, a native, Mr. Freeman Gosden. And Freeman Gosden, if you don't know, he was one half of the seminal radio program Amos and Andy, uh, which was just a runaway success um, for in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, it was two white men, and they used blackface to promote their show. Um, Gosden, being a native of Richmond, Virginia, was most likely imitating black people that he'd seen growing up here. Their voices, their demeanor, their their everything about them, putting on the persona like a costume and then taking it off again. Um, in essence, that's the whole problem with blackface. You turn people's identities into a caricature. And then you also have another Richmonder, uh, Charles Sidney Gilpin, who is actually the namesake of one of our public housing communities here. He was a groundbreaking African-American actor uh, who, who found success even on Broadway. He made the decision to stop performing in blackface after a certain point. And his career tanked after that. So you have the, this dichotomy of a white man using blackface and it, it leading to runaway success with his career. And then a black man, his decision to not uh, use blackface or wear blackface, leading to the complete detriment of, of his career. Um, so this this dichotomy of, of black people being on the receiving end of the negative effects of blackface and uh, that particular type of racism. Let me ask this and get it out of the way. Sure. Is blackface beyond parody parody? So if you'd be twice removed from the actual hurt event, let's say in the Jim Crow era or during radical reconstruction of connections to minstrel shows and everything, mm -hmm. but kind of spoofing that very effort. No, it's just in, in your writing, actually, when that concert promoter here dressed ironically in blackface, you came out and said there's just no occasion to apologize for that. And I thought of you again when Megyn Kelly's career was felled a couple of months ago at the Today Show when she tried to apologize for blackface. And I, and I said on Twitter not long ago, or I, th I think I said on Twitter around that time that Megyn Kelly uh, made those comments that I'm I'm just so sick of, of blackface, sick of hearing about it, sick of uh, hearing white people um, wearing it, sick of the latest incident of white people defending it. And, and every time I feel that someone makes light of blackface or they make it seem like, oh, 
you know, in the situation here in Richmond with that music promoter, it was, you know, the comments were, oh, it's, it's just a Halloween costume. You know, this isn't hurting anybody. This is, you know, get over it. If you're if you're that butt hurt over a costume, then you have more serious problems uh, to deal with. And then other people just claim complete ignorance about, you know, the, the history of it and why it's it's so degrading and why it's so abrasive. And I mean, every time that the, the history and, and blackface is made to be a not a big deal uh, to me as an African-American uh, that it. It's a slap in the face. It's just like, well, you know, this racism and this history of racism doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. Um, let's let's put that to the side. Let's not focus on that. And let's uh, let's look at other other facets of this. Professor Crenshaw, what's your take? Well, I think about the uh, communication pieces of it in that um, it, it's just really frustrating and really just uh, sad and unjust to hear that anybody would think that uh, it's not a big deal. I mean, to my mind, it's it's always been a big deal. And on top of that, there's the systemic piece that African-Americans have always been denied the communication tools to complain about it. Um, they've been cut off from from having any input into this hurt and the and even trying to inform the dominant culture how hurtful it was. And so I think there's just double shame in that. Of course, the, the dominant culture can say it's no big deal because they had complete control over uh, all of the communication channels uh, and cut African-Americans out of that process. So um, it's just completely unjust from the get-go. So I, I can sit here and say it's always been wrong. It's always been—I think it's always been clearly wrong. I don't think there's ever been any confusion about that. But the dominant culture of white people have always been kind of allowed to uh, minimize it or say whatever they wanted about it because there wasn't any meaningful way for uh, a black— culture to express their hurt over it or make that history known. And Judy, if I could just jump in and say one thing that I've seen in the recent reports about this situation with Governor Northam and now even uh, Attorney General Herring, you know, there's, oh, I asked my black friend, my one black friend, if this would be offensive, or I asked my black friend if, if this would, you know, offend them. And they said no. It is completely uh, unfair and insincere to ask the closest black person, the closest African-American to you, to vouch for you in terms of excusing your racism um, in the form of wearing blackface. And I think it further just exacerbates the divide that w that we see in, in terms of racism here here in Richmond, certainly, but really across the nation right now. And I, I just think that it's incredibly unfair that we, we keep returning to this same thing of, oh, well, I asked the closest black person to me. They didn't seem to have a problem with it. Black people aren't monolithic. Um, what may offend me as an African-American may not have an impact on the, the next person or even an African-American in my family. That doesn't mean that you're free to commit you know, traditionally historic and uh, uh, acts of racism. It's, it's just inexcusable. And to use black people, to try to use um, your black friends to excuse your racism, I think is incredibly just disingenuous and dishonorable. 
I think in Northam's case, at the, his disastrous press conference, he was explaining that it actually took his black friend just a year ago to even explain to him why this was uh, hurtful. Number one, that's not a communication channel. I mean, it's not a, a person of color's responsibility. It's not their job to explain to anybody or represent, you know, a whole race of people why this is wrong. It's up to, you know, it's up to a person in power, and we haven't gotten to that yet, but when someone wants to run for office and when someone takes on this responsibility of representing all the people, all the people is an extremely diverse group of of folks, and it's their responsibility to— learn, to read, to be humble, to start from a place of not assuming that they are entitled to anything, not assuming that they have options, not even assuming in Northern's case that he has control over how this thing ends. Let me ask you, Samantha, I mean, if you were to take completely his explanation in this and he'd never bought his grad school yearbook, which I, you know, I didn't buy my graduate school yearbook and um, that he was uh, kind of miffed at this and everything. Is there in your mind any way that if he literally found out about this in a blindsiding way a week ago that he could have come out and preemptively apologized and cast it aside and said, that is not me. Who I am is my record. Who I am is everybody I fought for, Medicare for all, the support that I have in the African-American community. Or was he immediately banished to a kind of a leper colony for having had that in his historical body of work? I I don't think that there's there was, you know, immediate banishment. I think that if he somehow did not know that this image was in the yearbook, um, which is at for me it's hard to believe, but if he somehow didn't know or realize that it was there, I think the first approach that he took, a sincere apology, a sincere, you know, I, I made this mistake, I did this. I didn't know that, you know, that this was represented in this way in this yearbook. Forgive me. Uh, if he'd stuck, I think, with that, I, I think things would be very different now. And and I will say, quite honestly, for for me and, and for, uh, you know, people, a lot of people in my community that I've been talking with about this, the the act of him, of, of Governor Northam and even of, of other elected officials, you know, the revelations that they may have done uh, – something racist in the past, such as wear blackface or, you know, other people have used the N-word publicly, et cetera, et cetera. The act itself is not so much the problem if there is contrition, if there's realization and growth from that time period. And you can say, I'm a different person. Look at my record. Look at what I've done since then. Look at how I've changed. The problem for me specifically with the with our governor's situation is that there's this doubling down now. There's this no, I refuse to to accept this, and I'm going to hold the st- state, basically my constituents, hostage because I want to hold on to my position versus doing what's best for the Commonwealth. That speaks to a person's character, and that's the issue for me. Everybody makes mistakes in the past, and I, I'm really curious to hear um, Judy's perspective on our social media culture. Um, you know, of of kind of the gotcha. Look what we've dug in your past tweets and found. Uh, so, you know, everybody's made mistakes in the past. The mistake itself, you know, is not it was not the crux of the issue. It was how it was handled. It was the complete 
you know, 180 and the doubling down, which is something you often see people doing when they've been caught in making these types of racist let me Let me get a chance to make a quip. I find it interesting that uh, Richmond and Caracas are effectively sister cities this week because everybody's calling for Nicolas Maduro's head in Venezuela. He's lost all the support except for maybe China and Russia. And everybody in the Democratic Party, at least, and certainly the Republican Party, is calling for Ralph Northam's head. He's lost Hillary Clinton. He's lost Joe Biden, AOC, anybody of any significance. And I think Justin Fairfax to remain magnanimous and seemingly out of the fold until the whole situation got toxic again, stayed out of it. So he's a, he's he's certainly a mortally wounded animal, and people were waiting for it. But this starts to get much more complex and ugly and dirty when we get to the levels of Justin Fairfax and then Mark Herring and then succession to the Republican Speaker of the House. But before we get there, Samantha and Judy, and I will throw this up in a jump ball, I understand that blackface and the N-word are certainly tripwires and we're and and you know not tripwires but but third rails that you're not absolutely non-negotiably allowed to touch there's no way around it there's no artistic license or there's no you know I didn't mean it or I meant it ironically but then we start to get on slipperier and slipperier areas you saw uh, now the governor of Florida uh, DeSantis during the election he came out and called out his opponent Andrew Gilliam and he said let's not get into the gutter and don't monkey up this election by electing my opponent, who is African-American. Like, I don't understand who uses monkey up as a verb. I don't understand how that's not like a glaring, blowing, ear-piercing dog whistle. But he's governor of Florida right now, right? We've had uh, many other microaggressions happen. George Allen clearly lost re-election when he came up with the Makaka quip, which was a little cryptic, and you needed to do a three-point turn to realize what it meant. But um, Samantha... You know, I drove here tonight to the studio on Monument Avenue and passed by all these Confederate generals, including and especially Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Justin Fairfax, the African-American lieutenant governor, just a week before this Black History Month, stepped up and walked away from the Senate that he oversees because they were honoring and extolling Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. I'd like to read from an article by... Uh, Adam Serwer in The Atlantic, which I keep quoting, the myth of the kindly General Lee. Robert E. Lee's cruelty as a slave master was not confined to physical punishment. The historian Elizabeth Brown Pryor's portrait of Lee through his writings, she writes that Lee ruptured the Washington and Custis tradition of respecting slave families by hiring them off to other plantations, and that by 1860 he had broken up every family but one on the estate, some of whom had been together since the Mount Vernon days. The separation of slave families was one of the most unfathomably devastating aspects of slavery, and Pryor wrote that Lee's slaves regarded him as, quote, the worst man I ever see. He goes on to write that... When two of his slaves escaped and were recaptured, Lee either beat them himself and ordered the overseer to, quote, lay it on well. Wesley Norris, one of the slaves who was whipped, recalled that, quote, not satisfied with simply lacerating our naked flesh, General Lee then ordered the overseer to thoroughly wash our backs with brine, which was done, close quote. Let's repeat this again for everybody outside of Virginia and the rest of the country. This is 150 plus years removed from the end of the Civil War and more, you know, than the Emancipation Proclamation. Robert E. Lee is still a revered figure here. All that revisionism on Monument Avenue for Confederate generals. How is that not directly an assault on the African-Americans of the Commonwealth? It is. Who, who says that it's not? Well, everybody on Monument Avenue says don't touch our monuments. Everybody on Monument Avenue. First of all, I don't know that it's everybody on Monument Avenue, but a, 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 I would say a good number of white people on Monument Avenue say don't touch our monuments. Richmond is half African-American. 
and many of the many African Americans here have made plain time and again these monuments do not represent the Virginia that we and the Richmond that we want to be. It represents Richmond of its c- capital of the Confederacy days, of the days when black people were less than equals in every facet of society, uh, of public life, and did not have equal opportunity to take part in, in, in our society. That's what they represent. The people that put them there were, were hoping to uh, uh, enact, a mi- continue that mindset that would lead to uh, a loss of opportunities for, for African Americans, really anybody who wasn't a, a, a white person. Um, I think that it is a, a very abhorrent and very disturbing sight to see those monuments still standing, to see people revere them and the men that they represent, uh, knowing our city's history and knowing, you know, we've kind of got this weird split in Richmond. We're Richmond, but we're also RVA. We're a city that's, you know, making all these magazine lists for, you know, best places for millennials to move. We've got a booming art scene. Restaurants are just off the chain. And it's all excellent and it's good and it's progressive and it's beautiful and it's shiny. But we have this really ugly history that many of us do not want to deal with. We don't want to look at it. The, the, it only rears its head or it begins to rear its head through issues like Monument Avenue. You remember in 2015, uh, the white supremacist terrorist Dylan Roof walked into the Charleston church. Uh, the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church had had history going back more than 200 years and proceeded in, in very cold blood to murder nine African Americans, including the senior pastor and a state senator, during a prayer service uh, in order to incite a race war. And that, I believe, in the Malcolm Gladwellian sense, would have been the tipping point for the Confederate flag. That's when you started to see people uh, come out and say that actually that flag is now verboten. It's no longer one of these things that you could fly up there for Southern heritage and the, the valor and everything else like that. And then we started to see monuments really question. It's not very linear, but then a lot of that led to Charlottesville. A lot of that led to the incident at UNC, places like New Orleans questioning their monuments. I'm amazed, though, here in central Virginia, where after all, the, you know everybody talks about how blue the state has become and its senators and the governors, that Monument Avenue is still largely untouched in that sense, that there aren't people erupting in anger that we are now in 2019, the Civil War ended in 1865, the Confederacy, you can't be a Confederate apologist. I think there are people erupting in anger about it, um, but I, I also think there are, are very many people who don't want those monuments I'm to go gonna, anywhere. I'm sorry, I'm going to push back at you. It was hardly in the news that Justin Fairfax had to walk away from an apology session mm. honoring General Lee. It's not. It's not a taboo thing to honor General Lee in Stonewall Jackson. No, not at all. Not there's a shrine. That was to... hardly in the news. He Instagrammed it. He tweeted it before any of this imbroglio. Sure, sure. And I'm bringing it up after you know three separate crises. You know, two three weeks later. Well, I think Samantha hit on it. There's just two very separate Richmonds, and I think that there has not been the leadership in Richmond like there was in New Orleans. But in... stop with Richmond. That's the Virginia State Senate that he was overseeing. Right. It wasn't just Richmond. He as president of the Virginia Senate. When he stepped away, the Republican controlled barely by like a, like a hair comes in and says, we are going to honor this tradition of of extolling Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And he is an African-American statewide elected official walked away from that. And it hardly made the news. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying in terms of the monuments, I don't think that there's been the leadership and the commitment to make it happen, to have any movement there. 
as the and a committed like a long term commitment of leadership like there was in New Orleans and has been for twenty years to that wasn't an overnight thing of mm-hmm. that's um, important to know. Yeah, I mean there was people on the ground for twenty years fighting fighting to um, take those things down. So anyway, I just think the there's a quiet old Richmond that runs the financial district here and has all the power they they still hold sort of a core power that just basically remain kind of quiet and they um, pull some strings and keep things going and still believe in an old Richmond um, and they essentially maybe don't want to cause too many waves. They're glad the city is growing in the way that Samantha described. They are very glad that there's great restaurants and millennials moving in, um, but they also are very hardline conservative people that don't want the monuments going anywhere. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Judy Crenshaw. She is a professor at VCU's Robertson School of Media and Culture, and we're joined also by Samantha Willis, a writer. You've seen her bylines in Essence, Glamour, uh, Richmond Magazine. She was behind the groundbreaking unmasking series on race and racism. Unpack this further for me here, because there's a part of us that just wants to talk about the RVA. But as you know, Virginia and covering Virginia is a very different beast right now. If I take you to northern Virginia, it's it's dark blue and it's pitch blue. And here in central Virginia, we just elected our first Democratic uh, congressperson in the RVA, uh, the you know the, the Virginia 7th and Abigail Spammer. I think the first Democrat elected to serve since 1971 and certainly the first woman. And then you go down to Southern Virginia. If I drive down to Farmville, if I drive through Powhatan, Chester, you know, all, all that stuff passed. If you go to Bristol, as I said, it resembles much more of Dixie. So, and here you have a statewide elected official who was very popular among the, the, the multi-hued uh, Democrats involved, not just the, you know, the hipster millennials moving in in the beer district and the donuts, but Indian Americans in Northern Virginia, uh, the, the swads of like little Hanoi on horse pen that we have here, the Vietnamese Americans. And this throws that all into question, just an incident that comes back to haunt him from 35 years ago. Well, I mean, again, I think it's about accountability and I think it's about uh, how you process the situation moving forward. Um, again, ju- you know, it's not about, you know, we, we, call something on Twitter cancel culture. It's not about just condemning someone forever for an action that they did 35 years ago. It's about has this individual matured, learned, uh, grown as a person? Uh, how have they demonstrated that? And are they capable of, of leading in the capacity, in such a, an important capacity? My, my, my response to that would be no, based on the immediate recant and the doubling down that um, we've seen. Uh, I, I think that that marked a, a turning point um, in which he lost a lot of respect um, amongst, for me as an African-American, I, I lost a lot of respect because if he'd done, you know, the blackface incident, he'd learned from it, he'd grown from it, we can move forward. I mean, after all, African-Americans and black people in Virginia, we have to do a lot of forgiving and, and turning the other cheek uh, and mo- to move forward if we want to have any progress um, in the state. So that's not a foreign concept. Um, the, the problem was uh, his recanting and now the, the doubling down, the, the ferocious denial um, and the w- being willing to hold this, this state uh, in, a, in a bad position um, to, to hang on to his position. What do you think about the second shooter drop? Actually, the second and a half shooter drop, if you count Michael Jackson, that second explanation, which was beyond surreal. But then the Justin Fairfax element of it, where initially people weren't all that 
bothered by it because you had the possibility that Justin Fairfax could inherit the three years left on Northam, a young, attractive candidate, and then a, then run for you know his own four years. Mm-hmm. And so the Democratic Party very quickly, some of the leading lights, especially going into the 2020 election where they want to come to town and not deal with an albatross, backed Justin Fairfax yes. and said they should step down. But then this allegation happened where Me Too effectively crashed into racism. It did. And I, I think this is a good um, examination of intersectionality, meaning how these social issues, race. Um, I think that um, they, there's also a little bit of uh, toxic max- masculinity going on with um, the situation um, concerning our lieutenant governor. Um, the the response, the tone of the response that he gave to, to the statement um, was not necessarily a, a, a tone that I would expect from an elected official that I was comfortable with. The, the later re- revelations by the Washington Post that his camp had exaggerated, um, you know, their statement that the Washington Post had thoroughly investigated and found no basis for the story, that that was not true. Um, all of these things um, definitely uh, rained on the parade um, for, for Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. Um, but I think that, again, this is a good example of how we can't we cannot continue to look at issues in silos. It can't just be about race. It can't just be about economics. It can't just be about uh, gender studies. It can't just be about any one thing. All of these things are very much interconnected and in some ways interdependent on each other. Uh, and that's what you see in, in this situation with uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. I, I am uh, very hopeful um, that a full investigation, a fair investigation of that situation will occur uh, and that the, the, the truth will be known and that my heart and my, my thoughts go out um, to, to the woman who has come forward with these allegations because it cannot be easy to have, to have done that. And I, you know, I think I'm n- not amongst a, a small number of people wondering why would someone come forward with these allegations if there was no truth to them? What, what does she have to, to gain um, by, you know, making up a complete uh, falsehood? Uh, but but again, this is an example of how these issues connect and collide. And then pow, 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 Mark Herring, who would be next in line, the attorney general comes out and says, oh, I was involved preemptively. Like this is where if you do a social media audit, which I think a lot of your students are asking you about in the PR program and, and in social media. And then that would leave and, and we'll, we'll talk to Jeff Shapiro, who's here from The Times Dispatch. That would then leave uh, the speaker, the Republican speaker of the House. I mean, at some point, does it, as I joked before, does it hit up against dog catcher or second selectman or freeholder? What my students talked about today um, what and what I urged them to look for was people in power centering themselves and how this was messaged in their statements, how this was messaged by their PR people on social media and in their official statements. And it seems like, you know, that's maybe uh, just to piggyback on what Samantha was saying, which I I hardly agree with everything that she just said. And I think to just maybe um, add another piece to it, um, to the intersectionality piece, is that when a leader, and maybe particularly a male leader, is in power, um, they have to, you know, be sure that they're not centering themselves in uh, this uh, reaction. Uh, and that's what was so disastrous about that second press conference. Um, so whether or not, you know, it's actually him in the picture is irrelevant because his true nature came out in that second press 
press conference when he doubled down, as Samantha said, um, and was making it very plain that he was now thinking only about himself, not the greater good of his constituents, not the greater good of how Virginia was going to move forward, but how could he, you know, save his own pride? How could he get out of this um, the most cleanly and in a way that he wanted to? And and PR-wise, this is not the most important point for the highest elected leader in the state of Virginia. He should have people around him advising him that is not the center of the conversation right now. It is not you. It is not about you anymore. You are not allowed to have it be about you anymore. Um, and I think that that perhaps um, in the Fairfax situation, that sort of took control as well. When someone allows anger to overtake their response and not, um, you know, realize that it's not about you, that it perhaps it is about, um, you know, the situation a young woman is in or um, then it, it goes awry. And um, actually, in terms of Mark Herring, yes, you know, he came out ahead of it. But if you actually read his response, it's the only response that is less centered on him as an individual. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking about the vacuum in Virginia. Uh, Richmond, we have a problem. However you want to label this uh, this, this snowballing uh, disaster. And to that end, joining us in studio, he just got out of the newsroom, is Jeff Shapiro. He's a political reporter and columnist, of course, for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He's covered Virginia's capital and campaigns for nearly three decades. And you can hear him Fridays on uh, our home station, WCVE, during Morning Edition. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And, of course, in studio with me is Judy Crenshaw, professor at VCU's Robertson School of Media and Culture, and Samantha Willis. You've seen her byline everywhere, including Essence, Glamour, Richmond Magazine. I just throw it to you open-endedly. Have you ever seen a crisis like this where— it's a one, two, three punch, and the Democratic Party, which was flying high just a week ago, was completely eviscerated in the governor's mansion. A trifecta in the worst sense of the uh, word. I've certainly never seen anything like this before, and I doubt really anyone has. The accelerant in all of this, uh, of course, is social media and nonstop news. Uh, if one would have ventured down to Capitol Square, uh, one would see a—, a a grassy knoll, if you will, just covered with with reporters, television camera people, uh, folks looking for something fresh, some new angle, something incremental, something with which to ad advance this story, something with which to keep it at full boil. Will you tell us at what point it leads to the dog catcher assuming office? I mean, if this effectively fells Northam, and Fairfax, and Herring. Who's next in line? Is it the Speaker of the House, the Republican Party? Uh, it would be the Speaker of the House, a Republican, Kirk Cox. Uh, and, of course, if he were not available, it would then fall to the House itself, a Republican body, to elect a governor. And it could select anyone uh, who met the qualifications to hold the governorship in Virginia. Uh, and, that and is, he or she it, would at be— At what point does it become like the CEO of King's Dominion? Is called, uh, well, that uh, would be, uh, <laughs> that would be the, the, the choice of the House of Delegates uh, if, it, if it got that far. I, I, don't, I don't think it will. Uh, this is um, a bit—this situation seems to me a bit overheated, a bit overwrought. It makes for wonderful copy. But the um, political uh, 
landscape at this point is so fractured, maybe a, a better um, image might be, uh, think of squirrels stuck out on the limbs of trees. Uh, how is it possible, particularly for the Democrats as the, the ascendant party here, to kind of bring everybody back off of these limbs and begin to kind of cool off and move ahead? You know, there was an observation that was made in The Economist magazine. It was on Byline, I think, a couple of years ago. And what's very peculiar about Richmond, Virginia, even if there's an African-American mayor, it's historically been the case, I think, for 10, 20 years that African-Americans control political life here while the whites and old money control economic life. And that is something that has uh, is really at the heart of tensions in the Richmond area. I think it's important to point out, though, is that Richmond remains a majority-minority city, even though African Americans are no longer in the majority. It's this multi-hued city that is majority-minority. It is Asians and Latinos uh, that keep Richmond majority-minority. And that's made for a very different vibe uh, in town. And I think uh, I think People are certainly aware of it. Um, it is. It manifests itself, as I think you put it uh, somewhat uh, cleverly, with this, a beer district and a donut um, district. There's a huge generational shift. I've taking... had better Korean barbecue in Richmond than I've had in New York or L.A. That's absolutely true. i got to be careful to not violate FCC you know, touting restrictions and everything, but I just want to share that. We have a Hanoi on horse pen. We have a little Bosnia here, you know. I'm, a, a, I'm like the George Clooney of the Persian community. This is not isolated to Richmond. One should look at Virginia. Sure. Uh, it's the 11th largest state. Uh, it is a state uh, whose population, the majority of its residents, are not from here. Uh, it is also um, a richly diverse state in terms of demographics, and that's a relatively fresh addition when I moved to Richmond in 1979, uh, rich Virginians, for the most part, were white or African-American, a smattering of, of Native Americans. However, now we have, and they have just sort of emerged almost overnight, uh, a robust and growing Asian community and a robust and growing Hispanic community. And this has... Uh, all of this has made for a much more national environment. Uh, this, is, this is not your father's or grandfather's Virginia. So how did the state's changing demographics really impact the Governor Northam's ability to lead going forward? If he's to stay in this position as he so um, strongly wishes, obviously, recognizing this incredible cross-section of nationalities, of, of different types of people that live here, how, how effectively um, might he be able to govern um, with, these, with this recent scandal? Well, I would note that the paradox of the, of the Northam governorship is that he is a man of the countryside. He is a product of the rural eastern shore. He's the first eastern shoresman elected governor of Virginia since 1855. Wow. Um, but one of the things that he has working um, in his favor is this strengthening democratic reflex. To give you an idea just how intense it is and how concentrated it is, a Virginia statewide, a Virginia Democratic statewide candidate um, only has to carry roughly 10 localities, 
urban, suburban localities uh, to win comfortably and put the governorship, the lieutenant governorship, the attorney general's office, and two U.S. Senate seats out of reach of Republicans. That's the case right now. The other thing about uh, but Northern, that's getting elected. That's not necessarily leading. I know. I understand what you're where we're going uh, with this, and this is where we have this tension in in our capital between a Republican vote that is largely concentrated in the countryside, very conservative, and very much a reflection of what one sees nationally, and this Democratic vote that's concentrated in metropolitan uh, Virginia and is, for the most part, very liberal. What has happened is redistricting the artful manner in which legislative boundaries have been drawn by the Republican majority have provided essentially an artificial majority. Jeff, you did write uh, very provocatively uh in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Virginia Democrats' crisis is becoming a suicide pack. Open that up for me. <laughs> well, uh, there is uh, something about a, uh, a, a state, in this case Virginia, that had a two-party competitive tradition but is now one in which a single party is dominant. And uh, rather than have huge differences um, over the great issues of the day, uh, most of the, the figures within the Democratic Party in, in this instance, um, their differences may tend to be uh, more of style, more of personality. Uh, their followers then are essentially little camps, and, and there are slights perceived and actual uh, uh, among them. And I think they tend to make for, um, uh, if you will, a much more vicious brand of, of politics uh, as a consequence, since they're not talking about uh, the issues of the idea of the day, they seem to be talking more about individuals. I've got a question, and and this will will kind of take it in a different direction. Virginia is not a state that is a stranger to gubernatorial scandals. Okay, we've had uh, our former governor McDonnell. We we know what we've been through there just in recent years. How much more of a circus is this situation with our current governor uh, than than this, uh, the the scandal with our former uh, governor McDonnell? And in what ways are they uh, uh, different? In what ways are they uh, these situations similar? Well, most obviously, uh, the difference is uh, Bob McDonnell uh, had a legal problem. Yes. Uh, he was uh, charged uh, with criminal violations uh, for which he was convicted. Uh, but, of course, the conviction was overturned uh, by the, uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, the problem that uh, Ralph Northam has, and to some degree uh, Mark Herring, uh, less so with um, Justin Fairfax because his public relations problem, his political problem, is also a legal one, uh, is that Herring, uh, actually I will say the, these three amigos, uh, now stand accused, if you will, in the court of public opinion. Uh, and that, I think, uh, cuts to their capacity uh, to, to govern. I wonder if perhaps all of these demands for resignations um, are a bit hasty, uh, that they are driven by this nonstop news cycle, uh, by uh, this uh, supercharged thing we call social media. And now there seem to be, if you will, sort of mitigating circumstances, not the least of which is 
Democrats are terrified they might have to relinquish control of the executive branch to Republicans, uh, that the Democrats are trying to figure out some way to sort of turn down the temperature, get back together, move forward. Jeff, I have to ask you, the difference between the Democratic Party nationally and the Republican Party, the Republican Party doesn't seem willing to throw bodies into the pyre like the Democrats are. I mean, you saw the the issue with DeSantis and the awful rhetoric during the election there uh, vis-a-vis Andrew Gilliam. You saw the the tolerance of, of, of Steve King's rhetoric and apologizing on behalf of white supremacy for the longest time. Um, for me, too, you saw Al Franken snuffed out by a lot of people, including Kristen Gillibrand. And the party didn't prevaricate on this for the longest time. The Republican Party seems to have much more of a tolerance uh, to keep around at least coded aggression and uh, might not be quick to judge a person like, you know, Justin Fairfax. You saw how how ultimately uh, the party did unify around Brett Kavanaugh. And did we report today that Justin Fairfax is a hired Brett Kavanaugh's defense attorney? Uh, Yes, and his accuser is represented by Professor Ford's firm. Uh, So the parallels are are certainly uh, unnerving. But uh, I think uh, we need to keep something in in mind here. Um, What what is unfolding in Richmond is very much um, a consequence of the Democrats' deliberate decision to adopt a zero-tolerance policy on matters of, of gender and, and race. And that is a political calculation. The idea here clearly is to maintain as sharp a distinction with the Trump-era Republican Party, where perceived bigotry and misogynist behavior apparently is, is okay. Uh, the the Democrats are looking at a make-or-break legislative election in Virginia this fall. Uh, they want to win. They not only want to take back the legislature of Virginia, they want to enjoy the full control of Virginia's government for the first time since 1993. They don't want to do anything to disrupt, to threaten those chances, and that means being very mindful of some of the most important elements of the Democratic coalition. That includes minority voters. That includes women, in particular suburban women, affluent, well-educated suburban women. What is the locus of control for that nationally? Who's calling those shots or who's setting that standard of kashruth, if you will? Well, uh, just look at the uh, look at the turnouts in, 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 in the turnout patterns and the voting returns in the last presidential uh, election. Now, that's one of the things about politics. Politicians in planning to fight a new campaign are always using the rules or what seem to work in, in the old campaigns. Uh, so this is very much uh, what was going on in Virginia, again, an increasingly national state, logically follows what's, what's unfolding uh, at the national level. Look at those, look at that, pre- that gubernatorial election in, in, in 2017. Uh, it was uh, a mini referendum on what was going on in Washington. The Virginia gubernatorial election has always been viewed that way. Uh, there was a significant uptick in turnout uh, that made not just for a Ralph Northam win, but a Ralph Northam landslide and a 15 seat pickup in the House of Delegates. People were out there voting not just 
for Ralph Northam and Democrats, but against Donald Trump and Republicans. The events associated with Trump administration policies, for example, the attempted Muslim ban, these these policies have an immediate implication in a new, diverse, multi-hued state like Virginia. But I got to jump in here a little bit. I'm, I'm sitting here just biting my tongue because I think the events of the last several days, especially for my students, especially for my adult children, they are watching these three Democratic, the highest Democratic office holders in Virginia take a page directly out of Trump's playbook in the doubling down and saying, I'm going to brazen these accusations out until they just go away. And that is exactly why you have a split in the Democratic Party and a, and a certain demographic and a certain group of people who are very disheartened by all this attention to the Democratic hierarchy and the, and the machinery and saying, we're not putting up with that. We find that disingenuous. Um, and... And we would rather see someone, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, do the right thing and not pay attention to some election down the road and the numbers game. And I think in particular, to piggyback off of that, we're, when we're talking about increasing, um, increasingly diverse demographics here in the state, um, you know, uh, for, for many years, it's been presumed that African-Americans would vote Democratic. Uh, and there are, are still these presumptions um, uh, floating around. And uh, the, the the problem comes in when you have a situation like uh, this with uh, Governor Northam and, and uh, Fairfax and, and Herring in that the Demo you know, their label as Democrats don't match with the values of these black voters, of minority voters. Where how how do these things coalesce? How do we move forward from, from Well actually I, I I I would contest that. Mm. Uh, and and while the optics on on what is occurring um, over in Richmond as we speak uh, it, by no means is favorable uh, to the, the Democrats. Uh, I think if one, you know, looks uh, closely, and, and one doesn't have to look that closely to see that there is much in the public records of Ralph Northam and Mark Herring uh, that uh, suggest uh, an avid support of, of minority aspirations uh, and uh, some very dramatic shifts, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, when Mark Herring was a state senator, uh, from uh, northern Virginia, Loudoun County, one of the fastest-growing localities in the country, also one of the wealthiest, he was for the constitutional amendment that prohibited same-sex marriage in Virginia. Of course, it would be overturned, uh, but as a candidate for attorney general in 2013, in a Democratic primary, recognizing these changes uh, within Virginia... He essentially swore off his hostility to gay marriage, said it was a flawed and mistaken decision on his part, fully em embraced um, same-sex marriage as a civil right, and was overwhelmingly uh, nominated for uh, attorney general, by the way, defeating Justin Fairfax. 
But by the way, didn't I see that Northam himself voted for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004? Until uh, Ralph Northam uh, got involved in elective politics, uh, he was a default Republican. And I am trying to avoid descending into uh, the... the, the, into stereotypes, but you know there is that not that image of the physician who, as 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 a as a Republican. Um, he was uh, Senator Bill Frist. Yeah, uh, he grew up in a, a conservative uh, but a Democratic family. His father was a judge and prosecutor, and and forebears were also involved in elective life on the Eastern Shore. Uh, the governor's father. Uh, got his judgeship through his law partner, who was a state senator from the Eastern Shore and was defeated by Tommy Normand, who is the Republican majority leader in in the Senate. Uh, I only mention this because it brings to mind something that Douglas Southall Freeman, the newspaper man, uh, said. And this is Freeman, the man responsible for the lost cause school of Civil War history, that somehow the Civil War was this... um, noble principal disagreement among noble um, men. But it was Freeman who said of Virginia, relations are more intimate here. You know, Jeff, while I have you, I have to ask you, this is your 40th year in Richmond? It will be my uh, 41st year. 41st year. It's got to be germane to this conversation to the extent we're talking about uh, kind of a baptism by fire here and, and a very difficult conversation about both direct and coded racism and, and privilege racism. What do you think when you drive down Monument Avenue um, and see these statues of uh, Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart? And what do you think when you're on 95 and see that giant Confederate flag, you know, an hour, an hour and a half north? Well, let's put it this way. The reason those statues went up in the late 1800s and the early 1900s was because someone decided and with a nudge uh, of sorts from folks like Douglas Southall Freeman, that the story of the Civil War was going to be told differently. Those statues are, are bronze and, and marble examples of what today we call revisionist history. Okay, but this isn't Epcot Center or uh, Wally World. This is the capital of Virginia, a benchmark representative, very changing state. And yet these are things you're not supposed to touch among very genteel people who show up at the diner and bump into you and bump into me and talk to you about your column. And I wonder if if we morph into more of a conversation about privilege, like, oh, that that has nothing to do with blackface. But then when I talk about this historically, it does. Well, um, as I said, this is, I think, I think a form of revisionist history. And there is the argument that to take them down qualifies as yet another form of, of revisionist history. There is, and I think this really achieved full boil uh, in the 50s as the struggle over uh, civil rights really began to, to accelerate. These symbols of the South, these symbols of defiance, were essentially abducted, if you will, or seized by the wrong people. And um, this is why we see what we saw in Charlottesville, you know, Jeff, for example. I, I posed this question to my rabbi uh, when the when the, the monument Ambroglio uh, in Charlottesville happened in that awful um, three days. Is this tantamount here, what we have on Monument Avenue, to say a Jewish family living in Bonn 
or in Dresden or something like that and having to drive past statues of of Nazi war heroes, not necessarily, uh, you know, genocidal captains of the concentration camp. But can you put yourself in those empathic shoes to say that if you look at the devil's half acre and everything that happened in the Shaco slave jails, that that was effectively, I mean, the hardest thing for white rich to seem to say is that this was a Holocaust for the African-American population. The things that transpired downtown were Holocaust-like. So we can't, we can't in this day and age, afford to have Holocaust-like symbolism. Is that taking this a step too far? I don't know that it's taking it a step too far, but, you know, all too often history is, you know, written by the wrong people. Uh, what was it uh, that was said about history is written by the, the victors? Um, in a place like Richmond, it's somewhat odd. The, the victors here were very much losers. And as a consequence, um, those who were liberated, ideally liberated by the Civil War, the enslaved, uh, suddenly found themselves enslaved anew because we saw the, this, this, this renewed rise of, of white power in a South that remained terrified of African Americans. I tell people externally, you know, a lot of people in New York seem to think I moved to Tuscaloosa or Talladega. Talladega or Valdosta when I moved from New York to Richmond, but you're much more likely, you're probably 20 times more likely to see a gay pride flag in this town than a Stars and Bars. I mean, you occasionally see these guys near the boulevard, uh, near the Confederate Museum. I think it depends on what parts of town you go to. But you come to Richmond, Richmond proper and then Enrico. Yeah, I was going to say, if you venture into the counties, I'm from Hanover County, and and certainly if you you, uh, venture back far enough in there, you you have no no shortage of of, uh, Confederate flags and other um, symbolism of of a, a lost cause, <laughs> and as you said, very much losers. I think that close uh, us out, Jeff. Uh, well, I think that that one of the things that uh, we, people may not understand about um, Virginia as the northernmost southern state, that with all of these dramatic changes in its in its population, and and that diversity, uh, that you know we're very much kind of of the mid Atlantic now, and and less so of the South. This is a source sore point with a with a lot of folks. But I guess I would also um, I guess I would also say this is that Virginia historically uh, has had a special tie with the North. This was the industrial center of the antebellum South, and this was a state that was the last to secede and was hesitant to do so because it was not interested in cutting off sources of capital through Wall Street and the New York financial circles. So um, the alleged distaste for things northern, northern, excuse that slip, uh, northern around here, uh, the record really doesn't bear it out. 154 years later, that tension persists. I cannot thank you enough, my guests. Uh, you were listening to Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, uh, Judy Crenshaw, professor at the VCU's Robertson School of Media Culture, and of course, Samantha Willis of the Unmasking series. Thank you so much. It was a difficult conversation, but it's one we had to have. Thank you, Robin. Good to see you. Thanks. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show runs on WCVE News 88.9 FM, on NPR.org, and on the NPR One app. Of course, you can listen to us on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Founded and recorded in the RVA. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.